Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. <laughs> All right, welcome back to the Cribsiders. We are here in beautiful Anaheim, California, visiting the AAP National Conference and Exhibition. I am here with my awesome team, led by Joan of the Park. Joan of Park. <laughs> Joan of Park. Joan of Park. Like Joan of Park. I screwed Arc. that up, did I? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was the He's debut of the nickname. And now it's ruined. <laughs> and that was Nick Lee. Say hi, Nick. Hi. And Sydney Engel. Hello. We have an awesome team here, and we are doing a second recap session because there's just so much to talk about. And actually, we still even have like another day left of the conference, but people have to move on, and we just couldn't fit it all in. And I don't think we can even fit everything that we wanted to fit in this one. So I said this was our second episode, right? What was our other episode? We had a recap episode with uh, the hosts of Peds on Call, which was just really phenomenal. Uh, they were really insightful on their thoughts on the plenaries that they hosted. And then we filmed one more here, or recorded one more here on Reflux, which Nick and Sydney like. <laughs> All right. So, but before we get into it, Joan, do you want to remind us what, we're, what we are? I would love to. Uh, we are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. And because we don't have a guest today, we decided to bring something back that's an old thing, Picks of the Week. So we're going to start with Sydney. What's your pick of the week? All right. My pick of the week or of the, you know, forever since we pick ever, of the ever did. <laughs> this is not a pick for forever, but it is a really good book. Um, is the book The Sun Does Shine by Anthony Ray Hinton. Um, I've been reading a lot of not very insightful books lately, but this is one that's actually, you know, like lots of like YA and like just fun reads. Um, gotcha. But this is a very amazing memoir by a man who served um, a significant amount of time on death row for a crime he didn't commit. And it's very humanizing, um, very poignant, and I, it's not medical at all, but I think it's a book that everyone should read. Awesome. Nick, what do you got? Uh, I would say my pick of the week is still Rings of Power, even though as Chris <laughs> and I were discussing before we started recording is that it's kind of slow, but I just really enjoy, and especially with everything going on in the world, being able to go back to Middle Earth and just take in the beautiful film. It's just very soothing to me. And we'll just wait until you get to episode six, because that's where the pace picks up. Okay. All right. Six of eight. <laughs> I know. But like you get to go to Numenor. It's cool. Okay. Like Sounds I talk awesome. about the Maiar for once. Like it's awesome. <laughs> All right, John, what do you got? So I was debating whether or not to go with a book or expose my guilty pleasure of watching Korean dramas, but I'm going to go with the, the latter. Um, and I've been watching Little Woman, which is like this suspenseful Korean drama about this family who is poor but comes into, I think, I don't know what the like the dollar conversion of it, but it's like a lot of money. They come into face with a lot of money and what they do with it. And it's very exciting. So I recommend that. How do they get the money? They win the lottery? It's a mystery. Or it's a mystery. The girl's friend. Oh, oh my so gosh. It's like I'm going to ruin it. I can't. Drama. Yes. Okay. Yes. It's very good. Though. That was a good teaser. Don't We're all going to have to watch it now. now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess I, my, my pick 
um, even though I don't know how it's going right now, is Game of Thrones as the opposite for what Nick gave. Because I feel like you're either in the Game of Thrones camp or in the uh, Lord of the Rings. I watch both. It's a reason to look forward to Friday and Sunday. (laughs) (laughs) I've only gotten through two episodes so far of the new new season or new show, whatever it's called. It is a season. It's a season. Season of show. Yeah. (laughs) But it's um, also picking up finally. It's uh, very slow going. Well, there you go. We have two fantasy things. We have a Korean drama and mm-hmm. we have a book. Oh, man. <laughs> Mine's like way too serious now. <laughs> <laughs> As a side note, does anyone know what an Ifrit is or an Ifrit? Because it's, a, a th- it's like a spirit. It's like a demon spirit. I that think. is so new because someone on this Google Doc is showing up as an anonymous Ifrit, which is, I've always seen, like, anonymous tiger. I think it's from, like, yeah, it's, like, wow. Arabic. Mm-hmm. That's going to be my other pick of the week, the anonymous me, Ifrit. That's thanks, <laughs> I think, to Supernatural, which you can find on Netflix also. <laughs> uh, all right. We should get into it because we have a lot to go over, right, Joan? Mm-hmm. Yes. Do you want to guide us through this conversation? Um, yeah, so I think we have a lot to cover, and I think it would just be really interesting if we could just all go around talking about um, different talks and plenaries that we've gone to, and if we could start off talking about ADHD, since it seems like both Chris and Sydney, you all went, um, so I'd love to hear what you all learned. Yeah, so you know, I, I was a little late coming to the ADHD talk, so um, this this first pearl I got by looking back at the slides, but uh, Sydney, you actually were there. Um I thought it was really interesting because he was talking about, and this is Dr. David Childers who did this really great talk. He was a really engaging speaker. Um, he was talking about sort of like the conversion between the different stimulant medications. Um, do you want to explain that a little bit? Yeah, I'll do my best. Um, so essentially what he was talking about is when you have methylphenidate, it's actually um, 2.5 milligrams for every 5 milligrams, so half the milligrams of the D-isomer of the amphetamine, dextroamphetamine salt. So essentially when you're talking about potency, it's not a one-to-one conversion between those medications. It's a two-to-one conversion. Yeah, I never thought of it that way, but that makes sense just because they're different isomers. So I thought that was a great pearl. But just as I was walking in, he was talking about side effects, right? And um, a lot of parents uh, worry about side effects to, um, to stimulant medications. And some one of the side effects he talked about was rebound, which is, you know, when they start having their symptoms again, but then also insomnia. And I thought one interesting thing he said was that Actually, insomnia is a rebound side effect, or can be. So he he said that, you know, actually, if you really have trouble with insomnia, and oh, I also want to say we, we are recording, you know, live live at AAP. So you know, there's coming lots of stuff in the background. I don't think people will care too much. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so going back to uh, rebound and insomnia, um, he was saying that actually insomnia is it might be actually a side effect of 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 rebound. So that means that means the the medicine's wearing off, and to actually treat insomnia, you give more of the stimulant medicine, um, typically half dose, um, later in the day. And I found that really intriguing because I really never thought of it that way. Because we always think about stimulant medications, but when we think about ADHD, right? That's what it does. We're giving them stimulant medicines to calm them down, and so it made more sense as I was thinking about it. But what are your thoughts on that, Sydney? Yeah, I found that really interesting, and I I think. Once he explained it, it made a ton of sense. But definitely before, I would never be like, wow, this child is awake. Let's give them more stimulants. But it seems like something that's absolutely worth trying. And I think to that point, he kind of talked about the inefficacy of using clonidine for sleep. He was pretty opposed to it for many different reasons. But essentially, if you're mixing the two, then you're giving a stimulant and you're giving a depressant. And that combination is just uh, counteracting and potentially dangerous. 
Right. And in fact, he, he barely found a reason, insomnia to be a really good reason to stop the medicine altogether. In fact, he says most of the time, just starting a good sleep hygiene regimen like hot milk, hot, hot bath, maybe some melatonin with a structured bedtime without electronics was the best way he's found to combat insomnia. And then if he really needed to, then medication titration like we talked about. Do you want to talk a little bit about one of the other big side effects that we get from parents about the anorexia? Yeah. So anorexia is like that big one that we always talk about. You know, we're always checking that weight for that kid when they come back after starting medicines. And, you know, that was another one that he said that he he rarely stopped the medication as being a severe side effect for uh, rarely, rarely stopped the you know, a stimulant medication for this as a side effect. A lot of it comes down to like shared decision making, talking to the parent. If their symptoms are well controlled, then obviously working on combating their anorexia makes a lot of sense. And I think one of the, one of the pearls I liked out of this was he uses carnation instant breakfast, which I have used as well. But he was like, I looked at the labels. It's basically a quarter of the price of Pediasure, but the same content except for a couple multivitamins. I don't know. I, th- I thought that was pretty good. Wow. Good uh, money-saving tip for patients that are conscientious of that. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, sometimes he'll use off-label ciproheptatine. Um, two to four milligrams for some of the for some of the anorexia symptoms too. But um, again, the big thing is about shared decision making, talking to parents, and you know, a lot of these side effects are not insurmountable. And you know, the big biggest thing is whether the child is well controlled with their stimulant medication. One thing that I found really um, really stood out to me from his talk is he was talking about long acting stimulant use in general, but then he was saying that for high school and college age kids, he actually strongly prefers prescribing the patch, which is something I personally have never prescribed. The idea being that the duration of effect is so much longer that it's 18 hours. And he was saying, how often is a college kid done with all their work at 5 p.m.? Like that's not the life that a kid in college is is leading. And so that allows them to have that effect that lasts a longer time. And it also reduces the risk of diversion. So I think that was pretty practice changing for me. You know, when I was when I first walked into the talk, he had this like form letter up about sending to schools. Can you can you explain that a little bit? Because I wasn't completely sure what was going on there. Yeah, to me that felt a little bit like a life hack because he um, was saying that uh, there's a huge overlap between kids with ADHD and kids with learning disabilities. There's also a huge misdiagnosis between the two that maybe it's a child who's actually has a learning disability that they are seeming like they they are hyperactive or inattentive because they are struggling to comprehend the information that's being given. And that in those cases, often what he'll do is he'll give, there's a form letter, he'll give it to the families, he'll have copies in his office, give it to the families, have them fill it out and give it to the school. And legally, the school has to test the kid for a learning disability within 60 days, which to me is just amazing because the amount of time it takes for me to refer someone to developmental pediatrics or to the proper channels to get that testing is always going to be longer than 60 days. Yeah, hopefully we can... Um, dig up that form letter and the citation, then we can put that in the show notes. I think that's a great that. idea. Let's do it. Great. Um, so the talk that I went to first, I got here to the conference in a little bit late, but the first talk that I went to was on contraception and menstrual suppression, which I think I talked about briefly in the teaser, but this was just such a wonderful talk given by Dr. Rachel Goldstein and Dr. Jonathan Avila. 
hopefully I pronounced that right. But they started off by just giving a really good framework of how to go about prescribing birth control um, when addressing either of these two concerns. And so to really think about for the patient in front of you, is their primary goal contraception or is it menstrual suppression? Because um, I know for me, I'm always thinking like, I want to make sure that if my patient, if it fits with my patient's lifestyle, like larks seem to be my go-to at all times. Um, But really remembering that the larks are really um, effective for contraception. Oftentimes, uh, depending on the patient, they may have more irregular bleeding or more increased um, bleeding as well. So that I thought was a really good framework um, and just a concrete pearl, I guess, when going about prescribing this. And then they also mentioned that there are a lot of good resources out there that you can refer to when prescribing contraception, such as the CDC contraception app. And that really uh, has a beautiful grid that they showed. um, And I think we can probably link the uh, app as well in the show notes um, that went over the different contraindications for estrogen, because I know that they that can be pretty confusing. But the really exciting pearl that I learned was that for um, IUDs, all of the durations of the IUDs, including hormonal as well as copper IUDs, have been lengthened recently by the FDA. So our hormonal um, IUDs um, have been approved for seven or eight years, depending on the brand, but likely they can be safe up to eight years. And then the copper IUD is currently um, FDA approved for 10 years, but they're saying that it's likely going to be lengthened up to 12 years, which is really great um, that so many of our patients patients can have them placed and then not have to worry about them. And Joan, right before this, we were talking that there was a really interesting study that was cited about um, alternate uses of uh, lemonodrestal IUDs. Yes, um, that was that was so interesting. But in 2021, um, in the New England Journal of Medicine, um, the journal, <laughs> the journal, or Nijam, but I got a lot of hate for saying that earlier. <laughs> um, but Nijam, I'm just going to be bold. Nijim's I'm going to say Nijam's an orthopedics journal. Okay. <laughs> Nijam published a study in 2021 that actually showed you can um, use hormonal IUDs as emergency contraception, and it was actually as effective. As the copper IUD if placed within five days of unprotected sex, which is so great because as many of us may know that copper IUDs come with kind of the side effects that people may have um, worsened dysmenorrhea or just heavier bleeding. And so to be able to have this option is just, I think, an incredible option for our patients. Um, And I'm just going to sneak in one more pearl here, which I also was super excited about, was for our depot injections. I know for a lot of our patients, they have to remember to come back every three months to the clinic because it's an intramuscular injection. But right now they're working on formulations for sub-Q injections that people can take home and just inject themselves. And so you can just give them a calendar of like, just that would this be is amazing. the point. That yeah. would be really cool. I mean, Incredible. people already do their insulin right. and their GLP-1s by self-injection subcutaneous. Like, yeah. that would be amazing. Right, right. I, I'm just so excited for that to... Um, be approved and to be hopefully come to our clinic here. That's revolutionary. Yeah. Because, I mean, we have lots of, you know, in the MedPeds clinic that we have, like, it's just like just a random appointment just to get their depot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously it's another great time to, you know, oftentimes we find it as another opportunity to give education, especially for our adolescent patients. Um, but also, you know, sometimes we, you know, there's not much that happens during those appointments. And, uh, Definitely, I, we we have to you know schedule another acute appointment for another day just because we don't have availability. So I think something like that will at least free up some space. So looking forward to that. Definitely, definitely. It definitely seems like the more ways that we can or options we can provide for access to contraception is the better. So that's that's awesome. Um, kind of 
peripherally related to the talk <laughs> on contraception. On the first day of the conference that I attended, I went to a really excellent presentation on puberty by Dr. Marissa Kilberg. Definitely a lot of pearls in this, um, but some of the big ones. First of all, she had a framework that she uses for thinking about signs of either delayed or precocious puberty. And I'll put this in the show notes because um, I just think it's a really good way of thinking about it. Um, but essentially, she in each context is asking first, is it really a sex hormone effect and using testing appropriately for that? What else can be involved, such as are there other sex hormones or other hormones in general? Is it pathologic? How do I screen? And then should I refer? And so she went through this framework for each of the estrogenic effects, the androgenic effects, and then delayed puberty. And I'm not going to go through all that, that we just had an episode that we recorded on puberty. Strongly recommend people check that out. But a couple of pearls. Um, first of all, one that comes up for me a fair amount, isolated body odor. Not a true androgenic effect. Can't say that word. Not concerning, which I feel like that is something I hear all the time is parents want their child tested because they're stinky. And she made the point that like kids are stinky. <laughs> like that's okay. If that's the only thing going on, no further workup is needed. A second one that I think was a good reminder with a child that seems to have precocious breast tissue and actually with any child developing breast tissue, making sure that your palpation is really good and ideally in two planes, meaning with the child lying and then also with the child sitting up because it can be really, really hard to differentiate by visualization alone and also in the supine position between true breast tissue and lipomastia. And so just making sure that you are being able to truly differentiate, is this breast tissue or not? Um, because if it's just lipomastia, further workup is not indicated. In terms of labs, ton, a ton of pearls. I think for me, I'm always confused about which labs to order in these contexts. But one big thing she drove home. So LH is the best test um, when you're diagnosing central precocious puberty. But you can't use the adult assays. They're just not accurate for pediatric patients. And so you actually have to do a separate order working with your lab to figure out how that's ordered. But she said an ultra-sensitive pediatric assay or something called ICMA, um, which I have never ordered. And I am sure that I've gotten results that are not as accurate as they should be. Um, and interestingly, that's the case for certain hormones, but not for others that you need the pediatric specific and others not. But LH, that is one where you need it. And then, yeah, I could get further into the specific testing, but you'll just have to listen to our puberty episode. And then one final kind of cute pearl um, is in children with signs of precocious or delayed puberty, but I think this is more precocious, thinking about endocrine disruptors, of which there are many in the environment, but one that you can screen for and just ask parents about include a lot of different essential oils, including lavender, tea tree, and peppermint oil. Wait, so these essential oils can disrupt endocrine? That is what she was saying. She did not. I mean, this was a question that came up at the end. So I don't do know that there's evidence. To, you know, I think like I think this is going to be a, a good oil. research project like for me. Them all I will. Um, I will report back maybe in the show notes with if I can find any good evidence on the quantity of lavender oil. But but her point was, it's a really easy thing to say. Are you doing this? If so, maybe let's pause. So I, I think that was kind of my takeaway, not that, oh, my goodness, this is like the cause of everything going wrong in a child's oil. life. <laughs> I guess I love, that's what I'm taking away from love the lavender oil. Um, let's make a quick jump here then to Nick. Um, you went to a talk on the neurologic complications of COVID. Um, what are the pearls that you got from there? 
Yeah, the talk was in two different sections, but I'm going to focus mostly on the second half by Dr. Wustoff. The first half was really on the acute complications, but the second was on the more, you know, chronic and like long COVID and fatigue syndrome, which I feel like is kind of just baffling to all of us for the most part, particularly me. Um, <laughs> and if anybody's ever talked to me, I have a couple of these patients and I just find it really it's hard sometimes. Um, but I think that the the interesting thing was that the, she presented a lot of data and it synthesized really a lot of trials that were prospectively enrolled and followed. And um, one was the clock study in the United Kingdom, um, which just great name, by the way, great name <laughs> um, that demonstrated high rates of fatigue in both COVID positive and COVID negative patients. So like 66 percent. This is actually any symptom. Fatigue was one of them, but 66% three months out who are COVID positive and then only 53% if they're COVID negative and had some other kind of respiratory symptoms, I think. But it just seems to me that even like the more typical respiratory viruses are causing like similar things, um, which is interesting. And we're just living in the time of COVID seems to be fatiguing for most. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. I think that was like a lot of what the the session was trying to point out is that like it's not that's kind of what we're finally parsing apart with now that the testing is a little bit more robust and we've been able to follow these patients is that there's just like a lot of symptoms consistent with like you know chronic fatigue or you know other things and it's not necessarily related to covid and the next study i think kind of demonstrated that more clearly um it's the sars cov2 kids which there are several of when i was trying to look for the article but the one that I think that she was citing as JAMA no, is in JAMA a Network Open or Open Network. But basically, they enrolled kids who were receiving blood draw for any sort of reason, and then they added on lab work to determine if they were seropositive for COVID. And then they administered a survey about fatigue, and it's just about one third of patients getting a blood draw had chronic fatigue symptoms. But what they showed is that a rate of fatigue was low if they were seropositive for COVID, but they didn't know that they had been positive for covid it's really weird yeah so you're it sounded like you were more likely to report fatigue symptoms if you knew that you were exposed to covid which again is just like an interesting it's one of those nocebo effects of like knowledge of having been infected that Mm. caused you to feel worse but that's smart smart way to do that study though yeah so i don't i don't think you know i certainly think that there and I like again I have some of these patients and I feel like some of the studies for long COVID are very you know demonstrable and like you know you had coat you were fine until you had COVID and then you had COVID afterward and then you felt awful and you have brain fog and you have all these things that are very you know debilitating so I'm certainly not trying to question the syndrome but I just think that there's something bigger with the COVID nineteen lockdown and you know you know not being able to go to school not being able to interact and just like the overall stress of the society that's like infecting kids more than just like oh they got covid-19 and that's the cause of all their symptoms like i don't i just don't think it's that simple um and that's just kind of what this talk drove home to me is that there's just like a lot going on in the world that's affecting the kids speaking of things going around the world what what's up the, what's the, what's this thing about tiktok I, I, <laughs> I, I just Think, saw this and yeah. I was like, what? What? I feel like we heard about this briefly, but basically it's that there's a spike of functional ticks um, in 2020 and kind of afterwards. And it's partially because I guess people were on TikTok and they were like demonstrating their ticks and then like kids would acquire ticks basically by watching them through TikTok. What? <laughs> um, yeah, these functional tick disorders. And it's like a massive stereotype thing. Yeah. Um, And it's very distressing, obviously, because the kids don't know why they're doing it. I mean, it's not dangerous, but it's just like it was interesting that it was spreading through social media in that way. And again, just like 
such an interesting phenomenon of the post intra COVID world. <laughs> are we really, are, we're not post COVID yet, right? No, no, no. we're intra COVID. <laughs> yeah. That's why I changed my mind. Intra COVID. <laughs> I think we'll always be intra COVID. I don't know that we'll ever yeah. be. But we're on in chronic the, COVID. Chronic COVID mode. <laughs> yeah. On the note of uh, interesting studies, we did go to Segway. a session with our peds on call colleagues where they covered they covered kind of reiterated and recapitulated the top 10 articles in pediatrics that dr first and dr kemper presented on a on a live podcast so if you want to view the whole discussion please go over to our colleagues who are um, we were lucky enough to meet during this conference, um, but we are going to the AAP Peds on Call <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Uh, but we're going to go around and talk a little bit about our favorite studies. So we won't go through all 10, but um, and just what we thought was interesting about them. Uh, who wants to go first? I can start. I will say that I just feel really uh, guilty presenting these studies in a way that is not nearly as engaging as the first way they were presented, because this was by far the most engaging presentation. And if anyone well, comes... you're not the first person to present Oh, them. no. <laughs> <laughs> point is, if you come to AAP next year, I think this is an annual thing. And honestly, like I laughed to the point that I was crying in a published study recaps so strongly recommend this Serious session FOMO. but then this is recorded people are going to be able to no, 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 no no this oh, oh maybe, the other one the other one oh. you wasted your point pun for later it needs to be during the ortho part of this podcast <laughs> i'm so bad at puns i don't belong here <laughs> Anyway, my one study that I particularly liked that they talked about was a study on watchful waiting in acute otitis media. Um, and basically, the study showed that of 2.2 million encounters where um, acute otitis media was the diagnosis, 22% of clinicians appeared to use watchful waiting. They used the term appeared because you can't. There were you know some confounding variables in terms of whether a prescription was filled, et cetera. And then this was very different because ENTs were using watchful waiting 72% of the time. And there was no change in prescribing practices and use of watchful waiting after the guidelines that came out, um, I believe in either 2018 or 2019, that strongly recommended watchful waiting in specific contexts, mostly unilateral in older kids. But I think for me, that felt very practice changing because it is going to cause me to question whether there, I should be doing watchful waiting more. But Sydney, who's watching the watchers? <laughs> Apparently we are in the study. <laughs> I'm watching Sydney who's watching those eardrums <laughs> real close. Chris, you had a favorite study that you wanted to talk about. Uh. <laughs> That's all we need. Okay. Fire. <laughs> Moving <Fire>. on. <laughs> so you know, I, I didn't take actually any notes because I was having so much fun. I didn't actually take any notes in the session. <laughs> um, but I, we're going to have to find the citation for this. But apparently, the study showed that. It'll um, be in the show notes. Yeah, it'll be in the show notes. <laughs> um, that basically um, children, as as they're growing older, they, they they looked at basically different types of smoke alarms, and they found that basically the the smoke alarm had a human voice. They're more likely to wake up and uh, escape to freedom uh, versus a human voice plus a low tone. And then the least that they're, the least likely to wake up is a high pitched tone, which is mm -hmm. the majority of the types of smoke alarms that we have in residential households. Although they also noted that the low pitched tones one they have in like hotels and stuff like that. So. 
Um, I found that fairly interesting, but I don't have any of the other citation or the data or yeah. anything else for that. Yeah, I think the real takeaway was that the high-pitched ones were just abysmally bad on the whole, and that it actually, uh, the younger you were, the less likely you were to wake up and escape the sleep room. They had these patients like hook up to EEGs so they could tell exactly when they started waking up, but the younger you were, the less likely you were to respond. Um and it's all about being the frequency closer to human voice. Right. Um, that we're just predis- there's a predisposition to wake up to that, which makes a lot of sense. I know it doesn't feel that way, Chris, but I guess your your kids are hardwired to actually listen to you. <laughs> <laughs> but apparently, I'm not hardwired to hear them because uh, when I, when my kids were all like little babies, my my wife used to say that my my superpower was that I would never wake up when they cried. So. <laughs> And as soon as you get older, you won't be able to hear your wife anymore. So, <laughs> <laughs> Got it easy. What uh, about you, Joan? You know, I would have to say that the smoke alarm one was also my favorite one, primarily because it came with sound effects from Dr. Lewis um, with all the sound, uh, smoke alarms. But really just that the data was just really impressive that with the low tone and the low um, and the human voice, uh, I think 80 to 88 percent of the kids had woken up and escaped within five minutes or two or five minutes. I can't remember exactly, but that the high frequency tone, only 50 percent of the kids actually woke up and escaped, which is pretty alarming if you consider um Oh, I didn't mean that. <laughs> alarming. <laughs> um, just, but it is alarming if you consider that's what's in all of our homes. Um, and um, so I think, um, yeah, that was probably my favorite one. We got to smoke out the high-pitched alarms, guys. <laughs> Wait, Nick did, Nick, did you pick yours yet? Well, you know, I really loved all of them. But I think I like the one on secondary sleep practices. I think that it was just such a simple design and something that we don't really think about to counsel our parents on what happens. Not that this, you know, for me, at least it never crossed my mind. And that's this is like my own personal flaws that like, oh, of course, they'll just like put them back to sleep the second time once they wake up the same way that we tell them to put them back to sleep the first time. Um, But the studies show that that's not really happening and that there is a significant, I forget the rate change, but there is a statistically significantly higher chance that they were going to have some sort of less sleep, safe sleep practice on the second time. And I think it was 91% of all participants had some element of like, you know, less safe sleep practices throughout the night. So I think it just goes to show that or counseling, especially on the secondary sleep practices. And in general, just like continuing to reiterate it throughout, you know, that first year of life is really important to make sure that um, our children are safe, our infants are safe. And it was just really striking to me how simple it was and how clearly it kind of answered that question. Should we move on to some of the plenary talks that we went to today? So one of my personal passions and interests is addiction medicine. And we had this really wonderful talk by Dr. Scott Hardlin on the addiction crisis or specifically the opioid crisis that we have in this country and that there are currently 1 million overdose-related deaths since the turn of the century, which is a really striking number um, when you really sit and think about that. Um, And I think it's very much so a pediatric um, issue as well um, because two-thirds of um, patients who are in opioid treatment actually reported that they first used opioids before the age of 25. Um, And one third reported the first use before the age of 18. So I think we as pediatricians really have an opportunity to engage our patients to screen for opioid use um, and then to offer treatment as well. 
So some of the practical tips that he offered was, you know, what do we do as pediatricians? We screen uh, for substance use and refer for treatment. And then we can discuss overdose prevention and harm reduction as we do oftentimes in our well child visits. So talking about that, you know, if you are using opioids, make sure that you are not using it alone. And that make sure you have like clean needle uh, practices or that you carry naloxone around with you at all times as well. And then the last part that he talked about as well, that we as providers really need to check our language that we use um, when talking about addiction. So, for example, not saying like substance abuser, um, but really saying, um, you know, a patient who uses substances um, or one thing that he brought up was a patient who was birth. Uh, what did they born with addiction or born addicted? Yeah, born addicted. Born yeah. addicted. It's not a good word. Um, rather than, I think the term he used was like exposed. Substance exposed, Expo- yeah. I think. Yeah. Substance exposed. I think, you know, um, there's been a lot of push um, recently to really use p- uh, patient-centered language, and I think it's really applicable here as well. Yeah, we've talked about this a couple of times, using non-stigmatizing language. If you guys hear our discussion on their other episode with a recap with the Pizza on Call folks, um, talking about obesity and, the, and being sort of patient-centered about that. All, all about trying to be not stigmatizing. So, you know, hopefully this is a message that continues to move across everyone who who touches medicine, because um, you know some people just don't like going to the doctors if they're if they're just going to be talked down to all the time. So I think it's a it's a good lesson to be learned. Uh, so the next thing that I want to talk about was a session that I went to this morning. Um, so as someone who's interested in general pediatrics, I went to a talk on pre-participation physical examinations. And just to completely out myself here, I'm very guilty of just treating these pre-participation physicals just like school physicals and not really um, thinking about the nuances that there are between the two. So a few things that he pointed out here was that, you know, our Um, cardiac exam has to be a little bit more focused when we're really talking about chest pain or palpitations, um, especially because, as we all know, we're screening um, for sudden cardiac death. Though he did um, make the point that, unfortunately, our history and physicals aren't really the best at predicting who's going to have sudden cardiac death with it, which is, you know, of course, unfortunate and hopefully we'll have uh, more tools in the future. Um, But things that we can do is, of course, do a good um, physical exam, listening for murmurs, and then being really intentional about doing like our whole Valsalva, you know, squats and all of that as well to try to bring out that murmur to listen for hokum. And then if we do have any concerning symptoms on history or physical uh, that we can obtain an EKG as well. And then something that I actually did not know, but that if you have stage two hypertension, that's a, a relative contraindication until you obtain lab studies, and then you should refer to cardiology and nephrology prior to competitive sports. And I think probably as a med peds doctor, I was like, and so they have high blood pressure, but he actually made that point, which I thought was interesting. Um, and then specific to COVID, um, since, you know, obviously that's something that that has impacted a lot of what we do. He has on his clinic's physical form, it asks, you know, the patients, have you had COVID-19? And then to mark whether or not it was mild, moderate, or severe. And then moderate was defined as having a fever greater than three days, chills, myalgia, lethargy, or dyspnea greater than one week. And if they had at least moderate COVID, that they should actually, um, you should really dive into that cardiac questionnaire um, 
and physical exam, considering whether or not they had myocarditis, since that would put them at higher risk of having uh, sudden cardiac death. And if there were any abnormalities, he was like, you should actually refer them to cardiology to uh, because of the concern um, for myocarditis and cardi- sudden cardiac death. If there was no abnormality, then you should be able to go back after 10 days, which is a little bit different than what we say for our like our mild COVID patients. I think those were kind of like the really big ones. He talked a little bit about various physical exam maneuvers that you can do for MSK, which is also admittedly way more in depth than I ever do. And hopefully I can uh, put a couple photos um, and put the physical exam guide that he uh, had through the AAP um, on the show notes as well. I think it's really interesting that he provided specific guidelines for in COVID um, mm-hmm. around the pre-participation physical, because honestly, that's not something I've been thinking of. We do our COVID screen to make sure that the patient can come into the office. And then that's like something that is kind of forgotten. So it's right, really cool. Right. When he showed me the questionnaire, or not me personally, when he showed us <laughs> the questionnaire, I was like, oh, really? Like, why are we bringing this into here? And then I was like, oh, yes, myocarditis, very important and never something that I've thought about um, with our my physicals. Okay. Um, so one of the, going back to our plenaries, one of, I think the most interesting, uh, they were all interesting, but one that I thought was really fascinating was that we had uh, Dr. Julie Sweetland come and talk to us kind of about how we frame our discussion with um, patients, parents, and guardians about vaccines. Nick, what were your thoughts on that? Yeah, I just thought it was I agree. It was a great talk and one that where they actually studied and it was a great center of like anthropologists and sociologists and people. And they basically think about framing and how to frame talks about vaccines to actually get a better response out of the public and um, the community. And what they did that I'm a methodology person. So I really enjoyed that they actually, you know, thought they kind of did their research. They talked to people out in the communities in different areas, rural, urban. Um, They came back. They kind of came up with some ideas. They did some like rapid sessions to get impressions on people. And the ones that seemed more promising, they like tested in these larger groups and really then analyzed the data to see what they thought was the most. And they came up with like some very concrete ideas that will be coming out and um, with through the AAP in the coming weeks and months. And there, it sounded like they were going to have some sessions with the state, state chapters and district chapters. So I'm really excited. Um, Sydney, do you want to give some examples of how they propose to reframe the conversations yeah, that people are having? Absolutely. Um, I think so in terms of the specific language around it, one way of talking about vaccines that I have definitely used in the past is things like where this is helping in the war against XYZ virus or um, this immunization will provide armor for your child against a virus. And I, I've heard that language. I've used that language. And she brought up that using what she called military language actually, one, causes parents to question the true risk, right? Uh, is their child really going into battle? Maybe they're not. And then also to see if the child becomes ill, oh, well, the armor failed, And so those are both two framings that kind of put you at odds with the family and create a context that's not necessarily going to be most uh, supportive of the family going forward with vaccination. And so the two examples she gave that are more positive and more effective for gaining vaccine confidence, one was describing gaining immunity as being similar to gaining literacy. I love this one. This is a new one that I've never heard. Never thought about it. And I, I think a couple reasons that it is effective first, it's something that's more effective in childhood, right? You want to get people to become, you know, to have that literacy skill as early as possible. And so the time frame kind of aligns. And then it's also a societal benefit. 
Um, so I thought that was beautiful. And then the other one she did, which um, I thought this was hilarious. Yes, <laughs> I thought it was so interesting. Yeah, yeah. She it's it's funny because I think I often go the other direction, but she described immunization as similar to a computer update. So um, we're provide we're giving your immune system that you know additional protection against a virus. We are, and then you get into the idea of the you can start to think about okay well if a, one computer has a virus it can pass it to another and if we give all of our computers the antivirus software then we won't have circulating viruses i thought it was very appropriate for this era and very right. interesting I, I now people hate computer updates but i think at least <laughs> i think some people understand like okay this is just part of the ongoing maintenance against network threats and that if we don't protect our computers and the whole network goes down i don't know I don't know how many of other people have had their um, hospital computer systems locked down. Like, I can't even get on my Gmail anymore from the hospital because of major issues like this. Yeah, it makes it very hard to edit scripts when I have downtime at work. <laughs> uh, but no, I thought it was so interesting that part of the point was to, like, abstract it a little bit and that it's, like, so personal when you're talking about, like, your child and that abstracting it to kind of, like, a different setting is... Just like and making it more about like the it makes it easier, I think, to connect to that sense of community and not be like, oh, this is my child in front of me who's going to have like these specific side effects. And that was like part of their point. Um, but it's just something that is totally unintuitive to be like, oh, I'm going to like approach it this way in the clinic or like when I'm like, you know, met, like talking to a group of people or like a school. Um, but really fascinating and some really cool analogies that I'm hoping to incorporate into my practice. Yeah. And with that point, I actually thought this was uh, really interesting because the first point that she did bring was just that community aspect that we should focus on our collective benefits and collective responsibilities to children and adolescents. And that's really different to what I do in the clinic because I've always thought like, oh, I need to communicate to this parent or guardian that like this is important for their child. And, you know, you need to um, like it's really bad if their child gets COVID or tetanus or mumps or whatever it may be and thinking that I had to drive that uh, point home. But really that the studies and the groups that she had done showed that people um, responded better when you made a case for a public response and that we need to kind of frame it more in terms of this community um, immunity through vaccination rather than such like an individualized uh, situation. And honestly, this has been like a true theme throughout the entire conference, you know, talking about reframing, but also putting community first and reframing in terms of being pro-kid. I think we see this um, multiple times. And another pervading theme throughout the conference was talking about uh, gun violence, because I think that was a really important thing that um, has hit us all um, very hard recently. And, you know, as a part of the Cripsiders and being invited here, and the AP has been so great in letting us uh, go to, like, their press briefings and things like that, you know, I, I was able to see this this theme multiple times. Um, I think on, they so they do these sound bites um, in the first couple mornings where they bring a lot of people who have their abstracts and posters who are here presenting some of their, their recent research. I think one one interesting one was presented by Irma Ugalde, and she did a study looking at, a, it was a Texas study that which found that most unintentional firearm injuries among children occurred in the homes of victims. And she actually found that looking at before and after COVID-19 pandemic, or after the COVID pandemic started, that the trauma rates went up, and she saw more incidences of firearm injuries in her institutional re trauma registry and went to 34%, which is an increase in 2020 compared to 2019. And it's basically stayed at a new baseline since then. And, you know, not only did I see that in that study that they presented today, um, 
couple days ago. There was also a uh, AAP also had a press briefing, uh, which I thought was amazing because at this press briefing, it was great because not only were we able to that they help me understand exactly how firearm related injuries and deaths uh, are affecting our population, but how best to address it as pediatricians and as primary care providers in improving the health of our communities and of our children. I think one statistic that was really eye-opening was basically the amount of deaths that we're seeing in children from firearm injuries is like having one school bus driving off a cliff every three days. And that is crazy. And yet, we if a school bus was driving off this cliff every three days, we would do something about that cliff. But we seem to not be doing anything. But as we know, this is highly politicized, correct? And, you know, I think we realize that we need to reframe. And so going back to reframing about moving from anti-gun to being pro-kid and who's going to fight about being pro-kid, right? And our jobs as pediatricians and as people who take care of children really were trying to prevent harms. And, you know, we see this theme going on throughout the entire conference, which really came to like such a poignant talk today at the plenary um, uh, with Dr. Roy Guerrero, right, who was the pediatrician in Uvalde. What, what did other people think about that plenary? Man, I mean, we were just talking about, I, I genuinely don't think that there was a dry eye in um, the auditorium. He just walked us through, I guess he started off really about him moving back to Uvalde, um, which is his hometown and him um, and like what like showed pictures before the shooting happened and then uh, showed us pictures, not pictures. He, sh- he uh, talked a little bit about what it felt like during and like the very short aftermath after the shooting and then kind of the community response afterwards. And just for me, I think seeing the pictures again of the children and of the two um, adults that had died was I think just the thought that kind of came back to me again was that, wow, you know, I'm wearing this or I was wearing this lanyard uh, that said like defender of childhood. And I think I just seeing their faces really made me feel like we've failed to protect our children. And what do we have to do from this point on? Um, And for uh, Dr. Guerrero, what he did was he told his story and like went to the White House and really um, enacted change. And I think, you know, Maybe we won't all end up at the White House, but a push that did um, that he talked about was that we have to get out there and vote because as individuals, our vote matters. But then also as pediatricians, I think we do have um, a duty for our children that we have to act on, act on this so that we don't continue to have this school bus of kids driving off a cliff every three days. Yeah, I, I think this gets back to what we talked about with the Peds on Call hosts yesterday about the plenary earlier on the session about orphanhood and that he really drove home the point that this has left a dark pall over their community and that they're still healing. But, you know, it's not just that we had such a senseless loss of life, but that, you know, there are, you know, all sorts of children who lost their childhood and their innocence and families that will never, will heal eventually, but will never be the same again. And a community is really gone through more than anybody should ever have to and that the most pointed thing that he said is that he's just like i went to capitol hill to do my job and now it's time for everybody else to do theirs um and i think 
this is something that's great about pediatrics is that advocacy is a required part of our residency and that we do well. But I think that it's become it's come to a head and, you know, it really is on us to kind of live this um, and really put the kids first. I I guess the only thing I would I mean, I think that's a perfect place to kind of wrap on is that point of our role as advocates. I think that kind of his the capstone or the the ending phrase that he went on was saying that he was he hoped that he was the last pediatrician to ever have to give a talk like this. And I think that was very much a like, yeah, this this shouldn't happen again. And what can we do to prevent this, to prevent that school bus of kids, to prevent honestly, not just the firearm, but so many of these other uh, tragedies from happening to the children that we care for. I have one more thing. Go for it. I think that everybody, this will come out in time. So everybody right now should sit down and make a plan yes, to vote. vote. So Love make it. sure you're registered, check that you're registered, check that your address is right. Make a plan to vote, put it in your calendar, put the time down. I already know that I, when I'm going, I'm going on like a Wednesday for early voting because Texas doesn't let you mail in anymore. Um, so please put it on your calendar and make a time to vote. Cause that's your job. That's your job. Well, we should wrap up then. That sounds good. Here we go. This has been another episode of The Cripsiders. It's for, it's the, for the kids! kids. <laughs> <laughs> Get the show notes and sign up for our weekly Knowledge Food Formula Feeds newsletter on our website at www.thecribsiders.com. We're committed to providing you with high-value practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to everyone here. The Chris the Chew Man Chew, or Choo Choo, as we're going to start calling it. <laughs> Jonah Park and Sydney Angle, who unfortunately does not have a nickname yet, but it's coming. Um, our showrunner, Sam Mazer, and our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I've been Nick Lee. I've been Sydney Angle. I'm Joan Park. And this has been Chris the Chew Man Chew. See you guys. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.